the nine bows again formed a conspiracy against Egypt from their isles. All at once, the nations were removed and scattered to the fray. No lands could stand against their arms, and they were coming towards Egypt, while the flame was prepared for them, and a storm of steel awaited them on the shore. They were the sea people, and they laid their hands upon the lands as far as the circuit of the earth. Again, they came against Egypt, for in their hearts, they were confident that their plan would succeed. Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the history podcast you wanted. It's the history podcast you deserve. What is up, everybody? How's it going? What's up, dude? Oh, not much, dude. Not much. So did you like that Like that quote there? Yeah, that was pretty dope. I'm stoked to get into this today. Super interesting. I've, um, as usual, shown up with not doing any preparation, as is our agreement. I'd expect nothing less. I would be offended if you tried to, you know, bring some research to the show. (laughs) No, I wish I would have had time to get into it. This looks really interesting. I wish I would have had time to get into it before, but I'm really stoked to hear about it. Yeah. So we're doing a little bit, something a little bit different today. Uh, This is more of an archaeology examination rather than a historical one now we our main source for this is ramses the third the pharaoh and uh his mortuary temple at meninet abu um and the inscriptions therein so this is basically you know a propaganda uh piece put out by the pharaoh but it really is our only source for these events because all the other places that are involved well, they were destroyed. Well, I mean, in a lot of other things that we've looked at, we could also say were perhaps propaganda pieces too. So Absolutely. Absolutely. This one is just super naked. You know, like it's giant pictures of the Pharaoh crushing his enemies and writing how their souls will be lost forever. You know, like <laughs> it's good stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's good stuff. And we're going to read a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to read a lot of it because it really is good stuff. It and is. Uh, the names in this, these Egyptian names are fantastic. So I can't wait to get into some of these sea peoples. But yeah, we're going to be talking about the the Bronze Age collapse and the uh, the sea people. All right. Well, let's get into it, man. Yeah. So this is the time of the Iliad. You know, this is about 1200 BC, these events. So this is well before Rome, way before classical Greece. Um, way before even the Jews, you know, so this is Bronze Age stuff. And as such, we don't have Herodotus in the Bronze Age. You know, we just don't have, there probably were historians that wrote stuff down, but if it wasn't written down on stone or clay tablets, it didn't survive, basically. So all we really have are these inscriptions on these tombs by the pharaohs, and these clay tablets that we found through archaeology in, in modern-day Syria. Um, but this, you know, Plato describes this period as the catastrophe. And something really, really bad happened at around 12,000 BC, 1200 BC, I'm sorry. And it triggered kind of a, a domino effect of collapse through the entire ancient Mediterranean world. And so you had these kingdoms that had been in power for centuries and were only centuries removed from the climax of their power. 
you know, decades even, places like Hittites and like the Mycenaean Greeks. And all of a sudden, almost overnight, at around 1200 BC, those civilizations are gone. They are destroyed utterly. Uh, the cities are uh, destroyed by fire and war, and the, uh, the sites are abandoned. And there is no habitation, rehabilitation of these sites for hundreds of years. And um, so whatever happened, you know, this was a this was an apocalyptic event. Okay. That's fucking crazy. Crazy yeah. stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And so <laughs> I think this probably was the biggest dark age, like the greatest dark age in human history. This and this Bronze Age collapse. And you know, so we're talking about Egypt. Our main source from this is Egypt. And Egypt was able to survive this thing, but they were never the same. Their power was exhausted after this and they would never recover. You know, their culture survived though. So at least there's that, you know, their cities weren't burned uh, like everybody else's. Okay. But yeah, so like, you know, and, and it's just this big mystery. We don't really know what caused all this. And, you know, one of the main... I don't know if they're a symptom or if they're a cause themselves, but these sea people, these is a confederation of, of nine different kingdoms. And, you know, we don't know why they came together and why they decided to make war on the civilized world, but they did. And whether it was because things were already destabilized or because they were just so badass. They they conquered all these. They destroyed all these civilizations that had been, you know, been around for hundreds of years and uh, ushered in this this epic dark age. Are we sure that the sea people weren't aliens? Um, well, there's a lot of conjecture amongst uh, <laughs> you know academics. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course that's you know the obvious answer, right? <laughs> no, you know, it's really interesting. You... <laughs> I've got some ideas, but. If you look at the artwork at that uh, Metanet Habu inscription, the Battle of the Nile Delta, where Ramses III defeats the sea people, he celebrates it with this um, very stark piece of artwork. Some of the people in that look a little bit funky. You know, I could see ancient alien astronaut theorists getting a hold of that and and running with it. (laughs) Well, that's a big part of being an ancient astronaut theorist. (laughs) Or scholar, <laughs> or <laughs> however you would like to refer to those people. Yes. <laughs> but that's kind of what's so fun about this story. And this is one of my favorite subjects, the Bronze Age Collapse, is because we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's open to a lot of crazy ideas like that. And there are a bunch. And, you know, we just don't know. So we, we got some ideas and we're going to get into it today. Okay. Well, I'm can super I, excited. Can I tell you my idea, like, just right off the bat, like, based on the quote and, like, sort of what Absolutely. you described? It's it sounds to me like somebody had some technology, like the the inscription was like the fire was prepared for them. Like that to me sounds like they were preparing some kind of a, I don't know, chemical or something that they were using. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Now that quote, that word in particular is very troublesome because there I've, I've looked at like four different translations of it. And sometimes they say the fire is prepared at the harbor mouth. So yeah, I don't know what that means. It's um, probably like napalm or some shit. Like, a, not obviously not napalm, but like something adjacent to it, right? Like, to burn their ships. And if we if we see something like that showing up in like 
if you know if you bring it into a city and burn a city down like think about how you know superstitious people were like that would have been super scary and horrible and you probably wouldn't want to go back there because it would be haunted as fuck and everything right like well yeah in the ancient world when calamity befell a city it was usually or at least oftentimes not re-inhabited so like pompeii was never re-inhabited because it was cursed you know mm -hmm. That was very common, you know, when Xenophon was um, fighting for the Persians in you know, these these Persian civil wars, he's he's traveling across the the ancient Assyrian Empire and he's traveling in these cities that have, you know, 100 foot tall walls that stretch for 13 miles and they're completely abandoned. And the Greeks don't even know who built these. Xenophon is a Greek. They don't even know who built these things. Like they thought that giants built them. So, and, and these were the these are the cities of the Assyrian Empire, and they were destroyed so thoroughly that um, people didn't even know who they were. Like a hundred years later, that's crazy. And also, you know what I think is fun about what you just said is that the Greeks would do the same thing that we're doing. It's like, oh, it must have been aliens. It must oh, have been giants. Been giants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, dude. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> human nature you know <laughs> <So> <laughs> but anyways yeah so we'll just let me talk a little bit about the bronze age and you know some of the aspects of these different places and um and the unfortunate you know kind of circumstances that may have you know contributed to this this catastrophe all right all right so we are going to start in egypt so egypt you know by this time this is about 1200 bc you know, Egypt had been around for a long time already. You know, the, the pyramids were built in about 2500 BC. So over a thousand years earlier, um, Egypt was an ancient, ancient place already. And the people living there kind of could never really get to that same height of power as these, that first kingdom that was building the pyramids. But this new kingdom was extremely powerful and this is when they started building all those badass temples. And so like the temple complexes at Karnak and Luxor and Thebes, this was very, um, this is how, these are the monuments of the new kingdom. Uh, so, you know, Egypt had been around for a long time and it was still around and still probably, you know, the probably the most powerful place in the world at the time. And they controlled a lot of the Middle East. Um, Gaza is the Egyptian uh, word and, Canaan, those places, they had trade outposts in Syria. They were one of the dominant powers. And so when this era comes to an end, they are basically the last people standing. And we kind of know about this because of them. And so I think it's a good place to start. Now, the Bronze Age, this is, you know, this is the time of the Iliad. It's a very mythic time. We don't really have good history coming from this time. You know, it's most of it is inscriptions on these, on these monuments, you know. So the Assyrian king would conquer a city and he'd, you know, say how he killed this many people and he cast down their lands and ravaged their orchards and took all their people, you know, basically, you know, bragging about how great they are. Bragging so, about being a total dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, so these are historical sources for like the Assyrian Empire, you know, so it's extremely problematic. But um you know, so we, we do get some info, though, about this. And so the first place um, these sea people are going to be appearing is in a battle called the Battle of Kadesh. And this is actually 100 years earlier than the Bronze Age collapse. And 
boy, things can sure change in 100 years because at this time, this is 1275 BC, uh, the Hittite Empire, which controls Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, those places, um, extremely powerful empire. They're fighting Egypt over who is going to control the Middle East. Kadesh is like this kind of middle point in modern-day Syria, and both sides want this place. It's kind of this big trade center that connects the kind of the um, Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean. So you have this huge imperial showdown. You know, this is the largest chariot battle ever fought. And this is actually the first battle in history to have recorded battle tactics. So this is an extremely famous battle in military history. Like, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, So, but, we, but what's interesting for this story is that Ramses II, actually, who is who is commanding the Egyptians, he has a bunch of these people that we will identify as sea people in his army working as mercenaries. And in fact, actually, Ramses had defeated, these people were called the Sheridan, and they, they were a constant thorn in the Egyptian side. We don't really know where they were th- from, but they, they were always invading from Libya, from the west of Egypt, and Ramses had defeated them and incorporated them into his army. And he was so impressed by the martial prowess of the Sheridan that he, they actually mastermind the battle plan for the Battle of Kadesh. And so we have this detailed kind of order of battle where they had four columns and they were marching up. And so whoever these Sheridan were, they left a very strong impression on the Pharaoh by their martial prowess. But that's the first mention of these sea people. But on both sides, on the Hittite side, there is a bunch of sea people too. The Luka, the Tajeker, you know, so these are these names we're going to hear again. So this is a hundred years earlier at the height of imperial power of the Bronze Age. You have these incredibly powerful two kingdoms fighting each other for control of the Middle East. And in their armies are these mercenaries, these, these warlike people, and they're fighting on both sides. And so that's kind of the first mention of these sea people is at the Battle of Kadesh. And the Battle of Kadesh is basically a stalemate. Both sides claim victory. You know, Egyptians claim victory. The Hittites claim victory. It's kind of kind of a stalemate, but it's an extremely famous battle in military history. But um, So Egypt will go on to have a period of great unrest after Ramses II. There is a usurper who takes the throne, and there is a big civil war in Egypt. And this is a very uh, costly civil war for the Egyptians, and a lot of... Uh, a lot of money and treasure and blood were spilled for this thing. And eventually a new dynasty arises. And this is a guy by the name of Merneptah. And this is the father of Ramses III, who is going to be the most important, our source for this figure, uh, for this conversation. Is this okay. making sense so far? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah. Sorry if this is like too detailed for Egypt stuff. but Oh, no, no. I'm, this is super interesting. Yeah, hell yeah. Okay, okay weird. So, so this new dynasty, this is the 19th dynasty. Um, the pharaoh Menepta. He takes power, and he's the guy who coins this term, the Nine Bows. And the Nine Bows are the nine different kingdoms of sea people that are ranged against Egypt throughout this narrative. So when you hear the Nine Bows, that's the confederation of the sea people. And so from Merneptah's funeral stella at the Karnak Temple, he mentions these sea people again. And this is the second time we hear of them. And this is about uh, 1212 BC. So be, right before all these bad things started happening, about 20 years before the bad things started happening, 
Um, and Merneptah describes a invasion of Egypt from the West. And I will just quote from his inscription here saying, In the third season of the reign of Merneptah, the wretched fallen chief of Libya, Mereye, son of dead, has fallen upon the country of Tanayu with his bowmen, Sherdin, Shekelesh, Ekwesh, Luka, Teresh, taking the best of every warrior and every man of war from his country. He has brought his wife and children as well, leaders of the camp, and he has reached the western borders of my lands in the fields of Purer. So we hear that, uh, so the king of Libya has launched an invasion of Egypt. He has all of these foreigners, the Sheridan, the Shekelesh, the Ekwesh, the Luka, the Teresh, fighting in his country, and they've brought every best warrior in their nation along. Not only that, they've brought their women and children. Yeah, they're fucking there to stay, right? <laughs> exactly, right? This is a migration. Right? Merneptah continues here. His majesty was enraged at their report, and like a lion, assembled his court and gave a rousing speech. Later, he, he dreamed and saw Ptah, the Egyptian god of war, handing him a sword and saying, Take thou it, and banish thou the fearful heart from thee. When his bowmen went forth, says the inscription, Amun was with them as a shield. After six hours, the surviving nine bows threw down their weapons, abandoned their baggage and dependents, and ran for their lives. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so what we can get from this is that the Egyptians won the battle, and the army was broken. He goes on to say that he killed 6,000 Libyans and took 9,000 prisoners. And many of the people that he took were these sea people, people the Sheridan and the Shekelesh, these people. Mm -hmm. And they uh, forced them into service in the Egyptian military. And they actually settled them uh, in Egypt and in Canaan and places like that. Um, interesting note from this battle. To count the dead, they realized that some of them were circumcised. A particular group of these people were circumcised. These are called the Ekwesh. And so to count the dead, they wanted to keep track of how many of each people they had killed. So they cut off all the circumcised penises and made a big pile. And then they cut off all the hands of the people that weren't circumcised and made a big pile of that. So you had a giant pile of penises and a giant pile of hands. Why did and that, Okay. I don't really know, but so so later on when we're going to talk about these Ekwesh and who they might have been, a lot of people think these are Greeks. Um, why did I'm still I'm sorry I'm still confused. Like, why did they cut off the penises of some people in the hands of other people? Was it because some people didn't have penises that they were counting, or like I'm confused? I think it was because it was a distinguishing feature. Oh, they were like, oh, this is interesting. Let's get let's get those. <laughs> yeah. So these people are different than the other people. Let's count how many of these people there are. I think it was something like that. Okay. And he does describe like how many of each people he killed. So um, I think it was for, you know, for accounting purposes, but okay. it, it is Sorry. weird. And <laughs> I mean, on the men in Abu, there's a picture of a giant pile of penises and a giant pile of hands. Okay. You know. The, the Egyptians have engraven this on stone to memorialize it. So, okay. well, I mean, it was obvious. You're, like you said, if it must have been in, like an important and interesting thing to have taken the time to fucking carve it in stone. So shit, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so that's that's Ramses the third father, uh, Mereptep. And that's just kind of a little background into the Bronze Age world that the, these sea people were around. You know, people knew about them. They they were almost like they didn't need an introduction. You didn't have to say where they were from because they were very famous at the at their time. It's kind of what it seems like from this. But just a little bit more on the Bronze Age and like how it how it worked. And you know, so you know, the city builders of ancient Sumer, they're they're thought to be the first kind of the first time that there was such a big surplus in agriculture that people didn't have to farm anymore. Like half the population could farm and the other half could do other things. And so they started to, you know, form these complex societies and, and they built these cities, you know, and this is, you know, it's about 3,500 BC when we think, you know, the cities of Sumer first started rising and, this is not to say there wasn't settlement. I mean, of course, there was settlement way back before, but this is the first time we see cities, big cities, you know, appearing. And as this kind of civilization developed, you know, it developed into a very intricate kind of network of trade over time. And a lot of the power from uh, the ruling, the rulers of this time derived their power from the metal bronze. And that's why it's called the Bronze Age. This is before coinage. This is before money. This is a barter economy. But to make bronze, and just a little bit more on bronze, you know, bronze is um, it's copper and tin. I think it's about 12% tin, 80, 88% copper. And you can put other things in it. Um, but that's the best mixture is those two. And, you know, copper is a very useful metal. It's very abundant, but it's very soft. When, it, when mixed with tin, it becomes much stronger and... It can hold an edge. It's way better than stone tools. And this bronze was a was a really big technological achievement for civilization. It let you build tools that could cut stone, could could do all kinds of stuff. Like so, the the bronze was just the highest tech of the of the day. But to make the bronze, you know, you need tin and you need copper, and tin is incredibly rare. You had this really complex society based on this metal bronze, but to get the tin from it, you needed these trade routes. Like, and so, you know, the Greek warlord in you know Agamemnon and Mycenae, you know, with his you know ruling with his you know on the hilltop vast fortress. The only reason he can do that is because he has bronze, and that bronze, well, the tin in that comes from either Britain or Afghanistan, and both of those places are really far away. Mm-hmm. And so any kind of disruption in this really complicated trade network, well, if there's a disruption in the tin supply or the copper supply, all of a sudden the power of the king, well, it's in serious jeopardy. Make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, this is why we call it the Bronze Age. And so you had these, you know, these societies, these civilizations develop. And, you know, so there, there's one in Greece, the Mycenaeans, like we were just mentioning, King Agamemnon mm-hmm. and these um, Achaeans, you know, who who fought the the Trojan War, this age of heroes. And this was very much warrior kings leading their own city-states. So Agamemnon was in Mycenae, and you know Nestor was in Pylos, and it, so on and so on. You had these warrior kings and very macho society. Um, you know, they're ruling from these castles, and you know, and they're so that, that was that's how the Greeks were. Um, but the further east you go, the more kind of more civilized you get, the more luxurious things got. And so if you go across the Aegean, so across from Mycenae and Greece, which was not a unified land, it was a land of, of regional chiefs, 
and city states. But across from the across from them, you had the Hittite Empire, which was again these people that fought at Kadesh, that fought the Egyptians. This was an empire. This was a powerful state. Their kingdom of Hattusa, you know, they dominated for hundreds of years, you know, and they were uh, very kind of like a gateway people to the Middle East. They're kind of like Greek and kind of Assyrian at the same time. Anyways, that's a big power. You go further south and we have a place called the Ugarit, which is like a big trading place. And so when the Egyptians and the Hittites were fighting at Kadesh, they're fighting over this area where Ugarit is at. And this is a, where kind of the, the trade routes where this tin that you're getting from Afghanistan is coming through this this trade route, the Silk Road trade route. And that's how it's getting to the Mediterranean. And so the city state that uh, rises there, this place called Ugarit, kind of like the Venice of the day, maybe like Singapore today or like Hong Kong. Uh, not really an empire, but an incredibly wealthy city state. Um, had a powerful navy, tons of money. Really, really cool place. Very literate society. Cool. And so these are yeah, the really the big powers. And then if you go further uh, further east, we get to Babylon. And, you know, Babylon doesn't really need much explaining. They're around then. They survive this. They keep coming. There's like five or six Babylonian states. Hmm. You know, they get destroyed. They come back. Okay. But, but anyway, so it's kind of the character of the Bronze Age is that really it's the bronze. Uh, this is the source of power for kings. And, you know, if, if this is disrupted, well, that's going to cause a lot of problems. We don't have credit, you know, we don't have coinage, you mm-hmm. know, we just have, and like, not only was the bronze useful for tools, obviously, but it's what you use for war. That's what kits out your armies is bronze. So it, it's everything, you know, anyways, you know, so another characteristic of this bronze age is that uh, the rulers are, they all know each other. They're all, they all kind of talk about each other as my father, my brother, my great friend, you know, it's a very congenial kind of um, interconnected world. And, when they do go to war, which is not not that often, really, it's done by professional soldiers. They meet at a place at an appointed time, and they have a big chariot battle. And there's masses of kind of levies that kind of wait on the sidelines. But the main people doing the fighting are these elite warriors that ride chariots that are armed with incredibly expensive bronze weaponry. And so this is the characteristic of Bronze Age warfare. And this is the chariot was like the tank of the ancient world. And, you know, it it was impossible for people to stand up to these things for, for hundreds of years, basically. But as we draw to the end of this Bronze Age, we start to see, you know, all, all of these systems that had worked for all this time, they're all starting to get cracks in them now. And these disturbing kind of reports start sifting into the world, into the civilized world from the exteriors of, of, of calamities happening, of, of great unrest, of huge migration movements, of, of cities being abandoned. And, you know, on the periphery of the Bronze Age world, you know, we talked about the big states, Egypt, the Hittites, the Mycenaean Greeks, the Ugar, um, Babylonia, Syria, on the, on the periphery, well, there's tons of other civilizations and they just weren't literate. They don't, they didn't leave behind written records. And if they did, they weren't written in stone or clay. So we don't have them, but there's all these other civilizations on the periphery, you know, people in Europe, people in Russia, you know, uh, or Southern Africa, you know, and it seems like something really, really bad happened mm-hmm. and it set in motion kind of a chain reaction. And that reaction was too much 
for these Bronze Age states to, you know, to handle. All right. Is this, is this, I feel like I'm all over the place. No, no. I was just going to say like, hello, existential dread. <laughs> just thinking about <laughs> the implications of what you're saying. And, um, but yeah, so this is the catastrophe, right? Like this is the catastrophe. All right. And we don't know other than the Egyptian sources and a couple of these Ugarit letters that we're going to get into here in a sec. We don't really know anything from the Greek point of view or from the Hittite point of view because they're just gone. So just to kind of get into it here, around 1200 BC, this is through archaeology, Mycenaean Greece is destroyed. Every major settlement is either abandoned or destroyed by war. Uh, They find a a thick layer of ash, sometimes up to two feet, uh, and it's inundated with arrowheads. Um, so these cities were destroyed by intense flame and, and warfare. And I'm saying every major city in Greece, gone, every single one. And then the destruction kind of went further east into the Hittite Empire. And this is when Troy is destroyed. Same, same time period. So Troy is destroyed around 1200 BC. Intense flame, same deal, uh, warfare. And the destruction continues into the highlands of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, into the heart of the Hittite empire and the imperial capital that one of the greatest cities in the world, Hattusa is sacked and burned around 1200 BC and it is never re-inhabited. And so when you hear Ozymandias on, you know, on his windswept hill, I think he's talking about the Hittites and, and their civilization. And yeah, it's interesting. The destruction continues further South into the Levant and into modern-day Syria. And this is where we get to Ugarit. And so this was that, you know, Greece of the ancient, or Venice of the ancient world. And the thing about Ugarit is that it seems to be a very enlightened society. They have, um, through archaeology in 1928, when it was excavated, uh, a guy by name of Schaefer, they found over 1,500 of these clay tablets written in cuneiform. And so they basically stumbled into a library. They had to translate it. It's not the same Akkadian cuneiform that was used in other parts of Mesopotamia, like Babylon and Assyria. This was a new language. Interesting. It uses this, yeah, it used the same script, but completely different. And then further, this is just a side note. Um, they found a tablet that has the Phoenician alphabet written on it, or at least something very similar. Mm-hmm. And this was way before the Phoenicians and um, the Greeks got their alphabet from the Phoenicians. So it's an interesting place. These people were very learned. But now what, what's interesting about Ugarit, though, is that we have these clay tablets and some of them are correspondences from the king at the very end before the country is destroyed, like literally right at the end. And so we have like these missives, like this is like kind of like a golden arrow in archaeology. They found like a direct communication from two kings at the very end of their civilization. And so we, we get this window into the desperation that was facing the people of Ugarit. And I'll just read you this letter. So, um, so just a little background. So what's happening? So Greece has fallen and the Hittite empire has fallen. These are the two countries like right next to Ugarit and this wave, the sea people are, are coming, the enemy, they just call them. And, you know, they're, they're trying to stop them. They're, they're, the, the rulers are trying to adapt to this threat. They're, they're trying to figure out a way to stop these people. And they're sending messages to each other. 
And this is one of those messages. This is from the king of Ugarit, Amarapi, sent to the governor of Cyprus, then called Alessia, uh, Eshuara, who I guess was, I don't know if this is his actual father, but he calls him his father. All right. So Amarabi, the last king of Ugarit, says, quote, my father, behold, the enemy ships have come. My cities are burned and they did evil things to the land. Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of the Hittites and that all my ships are in the land of the Luca? Thus, the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that have come have inflicted much damage upon us. End quote. Hmm. Jeez. <laughs> That's intense, so, dude. I mean, I still feel like there I the idea of like this superior technology is seems like it's really important here. I like they see people, whatever it was, like they had they had chops yeah. that most people didn't have, right? Like there's something. Yeah. And, the, and so Ty, keep going. Oh, I was just gonna say the way that all of the cities were all burned down, like that in this intense flame. Like, is, is that normal? Like, I, I feel like that would be hard to burn down a city in intense flame. It's, it does seem, it seems odd. It does seem odd to me because if these were migratory people, wouldn't they want to inhabit these places after they dispatched the people that were living there before it? Or maybe it was such a climatic event that they couldn't live there. Anyways, it, it, it does seem odd that they were destroyed by this intense, because usually like the Romans... You want to conquer a place because you want to live there. You know, like you, you really don't want to destroy it unless you have to, to kind of subjugate everybody else. Right. Yeah. But these, yeah. So Ugarit in particular, when they were excavating it, they always knew it had been a great city there and they didn't really know what had caused it, but they almost immediately found this just really desperate and just apocalyptic ending to this great civilization. And we get these letters that are just this window into what it must have been like. And, and this letter in itself, you know, so he says, does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of the hit of Hatti, which is the Hittites. Mm-hmm. And all of my ships are in the land of the Luca. So, That's a sea people. So it's like, you said you were going to defend our ter- my territory, but you're not doing it. And we're yeah. fucked. <laughs> so. Yeah. So it seems like maybe, so Cyprus is, um, you know, a big island off of the Middle East. And so he's writing to the king of Cyprus. And it seems like maybe they, and he says his troops are in the land of the of Hatti. So the king of the Hittites must have called for help. Mm-hmm. And he sent his troops north, probably to their doom. And, you know, it seems like there was also a naval attempt. His ships were away at, in the land of the Luca you know, who are these Luca are sea people. Um, and yeah, and thus the country is abandoned to itself. Oh, it's just chilling. Yeah. Like, so, and this is seven ships. These are seven ships of the enemy here have come and inflicted damage upon us. Like just the impotency of the King that you can't stop seven ships. Or whatever the fuck they had on those ships. Right. Like, yeah. Well, and so, yeah, we're getting a little bit into the tech. So, you know, we talked about the bronze, but you know, all of a sudden, towards this time, there there's a new metal on the scene, and it's iron. And iron's not as good as bronze, but you know it sure is fucking common, and it's everywhere. So all of a sudden, these uh, these palatial kings and aristocracies that depended on bronze for their power, well, you don't need bronze anymore. It's not as good, 
but it's everywhere. And so what it seems, so it does seem like, you know, the tech, this, uh, this tech that had reigned for quite a while, bronze age tech was seemed to be supplanted by iron age tech. And, you know, these see these ships that they came, these ships, you know, these things could go across the ocean and that wasn't really something that had been done that much before that, as far as I know. Anyways. Um, so yeah, so this picture at Ugarit, you know, what really strikes me is that it's only seven ships, you know, and th- again, a hundred years earlier, you had 6,000 chariots fighting each other, not very far from the city, just a tremendous amount of power and wealth. And then a hundred years later, you can't fend off seven ships. Like, so what the hell is happening? You know, like there seems to be this giant decline in, in the strength of these places. And we don't really know, you know, what could have caused that, you know, famine or uh, anyways. Um, so the governor of Cyprus responds to the king, Amarapi, Ushawara says, quote, as for the manner concerning these enemies, it was the people from your own country and your own ships that had done this. It was your people that committed these crimes. I am writing this to protect you and be, inform you. Hmm. <laughs> just confusion. You're like, Interesting. Yeah, you just get this. And, and this could be part of it. Like, you could have giant kind of like rebellions happening in the countryside. You, you know, what if these peasants had access to new weaponry, iron weaponry, that had previously only been available to the warrior cast, you know? Yeah. So it could be. We don't know. Um, that, that could be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately for both of these places, Alusia, Cyprus, uh, and Ugarit, they are both destroyed uh, basically the same year these tablets are written. Um, there is a city nearby, Charchemesh, that survives the sea people, and they do go on to have a little bit of an empire for a little while. And Amurabi had sent a letter desperately asking uh, the king of Charchemesh to send troops to assist Ugarit. And he did. But by the time they got there, it was too late. And we have this quote from a letter that was sent back to Charchemesh from Ugarit after it was destroyed. Quote, when your messenger arrived, the army was humiliated and the city was sacked. Our food in the threshing floors was burnt and the vineyards were also destroyed. Our city is sacked. May you know it. May you know it. End quote. <laughs> Thanks for the help, but you are too late. <laughs> <laughs> our, f- our food in the threshing floors was burnt and our vineyards were also destroyed. <sighs> yeah, dude, that's fucking shitty. Like, so, I mean, there's obviously some super bad blood, right? Like, this is like, I don't know. This I, Maybe I don't really know that much about obviously about warfare at this time but is this how things were done or is this like particularly nasty tactics it seems to me that this is I mean, like the assyrians like they would do this kind of stuff um the babylon you know there was nasty actors that would do this stuff it's definitely not uncommon to sack a city any stretch of the imagination but typically the hittites and the egyptians didn't do that they were builders empire builders they didn't want to destroy cities they wanted to incorporate them so this was a very, very civilized place that um, was in between those two imperial powers and was probably the most, this was probably the greatest city in the world at the time. Um, hmm. And so for it to be destroyed this thoroughly and, and 
uh, it's sad, you know, and it does seem unnecessary. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know though either. Like there might've been all kinds of motivations, right? Like who knows absolutely, absolutely. what was happening in the sea people's lands, right? Like there, the ships were over in the sea people's like, I mean, there's gotta be more to this yeah. story, right? Like, yeah. Who are the Luca? And so th- this is actually one of the sea people that we do kind of know about. And we think that they are actually um, from South Asia Minor in a place called Lycia now. And there is a language there um, at this time called Luwian. And so it seems pretty obvious to scholars that this is where the Luca was. And this makes sense because that's right down the coast from Ugarit. That's just down the coast west from Ugarit. And that was always... Um, a vassal of the Hittite empire. But, you know, once the Hittite empire was weakened so thoroughly by whatever cause, it seemed like their vassals may have um, rebelled and rose up against them. So I do actually have a Herodotus quote describing Asia Minor. A possible, you know, we, we know that the Hittite empire was racked by a famine and that it lasted a long time. Um, and here's a little Herodotus quote that seems to maybe have something to do with the sea people all right so herodotus says quote in the days of attis the son of Manes, there was a great scarcity through all the whole land of lydia so the king determined to divide the nation in half one to stay the other to leave the emigrant should have his son terrenus for their leader they went down to smyrna and built themselves ships after sailing past many countries, they came to Umbria, and they called themselves the Terranians. Hmm. Now, what, what this describes is an emigration from Asia Minor to Italy, very similar to the story of Aeneas and the survivors of the Trojan War coming over to Umbria and founding the Latin race. So Fascinating. Very cool. I always, Yeah, I always thought that was this weird... Um, anyway, so we, we know from this that... Um, and from other sources, that famine was a huge aspect in this, and that that may have weakened, you know, these places like Hittite Empire to an extent that they could no longer control their vassals. And these vassals, some of them, you know, decided to join together with other kingdoms from other parts of the Mediterranean and form this confederation. And together, you know, individually, they they weren't powerful enough to resist these kingdoms, and they were vassals. But together, they could they could stand up to them and. They had this chance now that whatever, for whatever reason, the tin supply was, you know, screwed up. The There's famine, you know, there, there's earthquakes. There's all kinds of bad things happening. And this is our chance to rise up. So that's kind of the theory. Okay. So the Luca probably come from Lycia, but the discovery of iron, you know, all of a sudden you don't need to have uh, the king supplying, you know, this exotic metal from thousands of miles away. No, you can just get a bunch of peasants to go down and quarry it yourself and smelt your own iron. You know, it's going to be crude. It's not going to be as nice as bronze, but shit, it'll get the job done. Yeah, and, yeah. And it seems to be like these civilizations on the on the periphery, they figured out that bron- that iron was going to be the way to fight these chariot tears. And that it seems like they figured out how to defeat the chariot, basically, using javelins and longswords. And so, yeah, and this, and then these new ships that appeared. All right, so just to kind of keep this in a narrative. So the Sea Peoples, you know, they've swept in. They've come through Mycenaean Greece. They've cast down the palatial uh, system that had ruled there. And they, from there, they went into Asia Minor. And 
the Hittite Empire was destroyed, and they go south into the Levant, into Ugarit, and the great trading capital of the ancient world is destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And the Sea People now, this coalition, these nine kingdoms, the nine bows, again, they look south towards Egypt. And really, Egypt's the only place left standing at this point. The Sea People have taken control of most of Canaan, most of the Middle East, Syria, you know, Gaza, uh, Palestine, Israel, those places. And the only cities left standing, well, they're in Egypt. And they know that all of the cities in Egypt are on the Nile. If they can break through on the Nile, they could take over the whole country. And if not take it over, they could at least do a tremendous amount of damage and mischief while they were, if they could, could take control of the river itself. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah, definitely. I'm just, it's cur- I'm curious as to like, may, like, were they looking for resources or like, I'm just so curious about their motivations. Like, you know, if they were looking for a place to live, maybe they would have just stayed in Greece or in, in Asia Minor. But, but you know, those, there was this, this drought. Yeah. You know. I was going to say if those places weren't like, weren't going to be able to support the population at that time they would have to have kept going then i guess and maybe egypt was still in okay shape or whatever yeah and so if if this is taking place at the backdrop of some kind of you know climate climate event you know if there's if you can no longer sustain agriculture you know shit you know so that does kind of seem to be like that might be something to do with it because why again why wouldn't the see people just stay there you know it's, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, like why risk, why expend all those resources and then, I mean, I don't know. I guess you would think that they would have taken the food rather than burning it or whatever, but I don't know. Maybe that was an accident. Maybe they were just burning shit. Who knows, dude? Who knows, man? Yeah, who knows? But so anyways, this is not the first time the sea people have moved against Egypt. Now, we mentioned Ramses third father, Meremta. I don't know how to say this guy's name, but I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mernepta. Um, So he fought that (laughs) battle. Mernepta fought that battle against the king of Libya. And those Sheridan, those sea people were at that battle, you know, and they invaded from the West. And so this was Ramses, the father, Ramses' father. Now, Ramses had fought several other battles against these guys. And... One of the interesting things about these, you know, pharaonic inscriptions is that every battle is a victory, right? Mm-hmm. But the victories just start happening closer and closer to home. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah. That is fascinating. <laughs> yes. So they won all these victories in, in Canaan, in the Middle East, but um, they had to leave those places for some unknown reason. Um, <laughs> they decided to leave after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. After be- being victorious in battle, they left the battlefield and they left their enemy there. <laughs> <laughs> and so when Ramses talks about them, again, they went towards Egypt, but the fire was being prepared for them. So this was not the first time Ramses had tackled these guys. And so we're getting to the climax of the story here. And this is called the Battle of the Delta. This is 1177 BC, thereabouts. We don't know exactly, but from um, Ramsey's uh, funeral inscription at Menedet Habu, he states that this is the eighth year of his reign. And so we have dated that at 1177 BC. Ram- Again, Ramsey's was familiar with these people. These 
seem to be elite kind of military cultures, you know, um, they made really good mercenaries, you know, and so that they were familiar with these people and Ramses, well, I guess he was kind of clever because he prepared a trap for them in the Nile and he built a fleet, especially for this purpose. You know, the Egyptians were never very much a seafaring people. They were much more of a river going people and their ships would generally just follow the coast. So they weren't big naval warfare people, Mm -hmm. but Ramses built a fleet of warships because, you know, he knew that the sea people, he knew they were going to come up the Nile. They tried it before. And so Ramses was ready. And I think when he's saying, you know, the fire was prepared for them and the shores were, uh, you know, lined with metal. I said steel earlier because a storm of steel sounds cooler. But <laughs> so basically what happened is the sea people, after dispatching the powers of Asia Minor and the Eastern Mediterranean, they seemed to fix on Egypt and they came up with a two-pronged assault against Egypt. Now, these land forces that had been destroying all these cities in Canaan, they were going to march down through the Middle East and attack Egypt from the east, while the naval contingent would sail up the Nile and attack Egypt from, you know, the heart. And so we have this two-pronged attack. Mm-hmm. Ramses was not actually at the Battle of the Nile. He was leading the land battle at a place that I don't have the name, but somewhere in Canaan, uh, which was also an Egyptian victory. So they defeated them on land and sea. But here's what happened. So the sea people, you know, they have this huge mustering of naval forces in Cyprus, according to Ramses. And they sailed their fleet down. And this must have been a very, very large fleet. Um judging by just the artwork and the numbers of dead and slain that Ramses claims on this thing, this was a big fleet. And this is an ocean-going fleet. This is not um, a shore-traveling fleet. So this new ship had been invented you know, around this time, the galley. And the galley was very much like a Viking longboat. It uh, uses oars and sails. They're very maneuverable. And these guys, you know, these sea people were phenomenal sailors. And they took this fleet, these sleek warships, and we have from the Egyptian art, they they look like they have like bird uh, bird faces, kind of like uh, the dragon dragon heads. Mm-hmm. They, they look very similar. Fascinating. They took the fleet up the, up the Nile, but Ramses was ready and his fleet was hidden and they blocked the entrance to the Delta. So the sea people couldn't get back to the sea and they were trapped. And just then... Ramses had a mass of archers hidden in the reeds on the banks of the river. And they emerged with arrows and they showered the fleet of the sea peoples with missiles for what sounds like quite a while, <laughs> like, <laughs> like for like an hour or two. And, you know, one of the thing about these uh, naval kind of marine warfare is that it's very rare that you ever have much armor when you're fighting in a marine uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, that, you have for to... obvious reasons, like you can't swim if you fall in the water. If you have a bunch of armor exactly. on, it's super dangerous. <laughs> and you need to be fast and you need to be able to like keep your balance <laughs> yep. and shit. Like, yeah, it makes total sense. And 100%. I don't think yep, at this 100%. point we see all that heavy arm. That's like much later anyway, right? Like, Well, I mean, there is plate mail and stuff, but, you know. I, that that was kind of like one of the things, like these Egyptian knights, these charioteers would be decked out in bronze armor, you know. 
So okay, that is it was like really expensive? Is it like, like the shit that we see like later? It like what the you know the archetype of like the knight in shining armor? Is it like that, or is I thought it was like a little bit different? I th- I, mean, I don't think it's quite like that, but they definitely you know they didn't have. I don't know if they had full body armor, but I think they had like a chest plate. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's what I was thinking. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, so the sea people they're they're trapped in in the river, and these. It seems like they had these fire arrows and they shot, they tried to light their boats on fire. And, you know, just imagine being showered with arrows and you're not armored, you know, from all sides, you know, there's nowhere to go. You know, this is, this is big trouble. Now, some people think they would have sailed, uh, how this actually would have looked is that they had sailed, Ramses would have let them enter the river, sail upstream. And then when they camped for the night, they would have tied their boats together and and made you know some sort of uh, you know flotilla, and they think that's probably when the Egyptians would have attacked, hmm. and they were coming upstream, or maybe downstream. The, the you know the river is flowing towards the sea, so they have the river behind them, and they approach with this fleet at such a speed that the sea people probably weren't expecting them, and they weren't expecting to fight a naval battle with them to begin with. They were they, it seems like they thought this was easy pickings. And all of a sudden, this Egyptian fleet appears and Ramses had moved his archers over the night, you know, to the banks by where they had their flotilla. So this might have been a night attack, uh, which would have been even more confusing. You know, mm-hmm. um, anyways, the Egyptians got the got the jump on them and, you know, they they had these grappling hooks. We I guess they figured this out from the artwork. They would throw the hooks and then everybody would row backwards and it would cause the ship to, to capsize. You know, eventually it would spill over. You know, so they, they'd grapple the side of the boat, not the front mm-hmm. or back. And then they'd row backwards and eventually they couldn't uh, prevent them from doing that. And it caused them to capsize. Interesting. And yeah. And so, if you know, just from the artwork, I'll, I will upload that as the, you know, the episode art for this. Um, the funeral depiction of Ramses III at Medinet Habu one of the most dramatic pieces of art I've ever seen. And I think it really does give this impression of how terrible this battle must have been. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to look at it for too long. It's very complex and very intense. So yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, there seems to be this this crush of humanity, bodies on bodies, ships overturned, chaos everywhere, arrows everywhere. And then the aftermath just shows all these people being led away. And what's interesting is, you know, these they're they're dressed in different ways you know there's they're clearly not a uniform group of people hmm. um, some of them have little horns on their helmets some of them have these weird kind of paintbrush looking bristled like feathered helmets some of them are wearing kilts some of them are wearing leather uh you know breastplates and stuff like so like, we have these pictures that the egyptians drew of them and that's really all we have to go on that and their names but so that's the battle of the not of the delta and this fleet, this um, which was really the you know the source of the Sea People's power, was that they could show up unexpected, you know, with these new weapons, and you know while while everyone else is away. I mean that's what happened with with Ugarit. You know the, the army was gone mm-hmm. and and they showed up and there's no one there. And so they're not playing by the same rules. And and it seems that they are armed with new weaponry. These this iron weapons and that they had worked out how to defeat the old warrior castes of the old empires, the chariot. They figured it out somehow. And 
the old system just there was too many shocks it seemed like too many things happening at once and that domino effect the systemic collapse theory that you know if one if one foundation falls well it destabilizes everything else and then it can cause a chain reaction you know and yeah sure but and but yeah so i think that this is probably actually a good time to stop you know so we just with the narrative of what the sea people did and the bronze age collapse what happened and you know, maybe we can get into a little bit more on some of the theories and discussion about who the sea people were and why was all of this calamity happening? What caused it? And there's a lot of theories out there, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Okay. Hell yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas about this stuff too. So I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to hopefully be able to get the chance to do a little bit of research. I don't want to offend you by showing up knowing anything about the topic. (laughs) Well, if you just feign feign ignorance, you know. Okay, well, I'm pretty good at feigning ignorance. So, but yeah, I like. I hope this made sense. I think it was kind of all over the place, but it's kind of hard to inform context and have a narrative at the same time. But I don't know, man. It made sense to me. That's all I can say. (laughs) Cool, cool. And another thing we can talk about is the Iliad, and is that something to, is that a remembrance of that like mm-hmm. it, of this time this is when troy was destroyed they're all getting into boats and sailing across the ocean there's this great mustering yeah homer ca- calls them the sackers of cities many times uh so there's interesting all kinds of interesting little oh, i didn't even think about that yeah that's fascinating well in agamemnon right like that that's a character in the iliad right and also in the oristea yeah agamemnon is what the civilization's named after so his city was Mycenae, Mm -hmm. which the most famous city in Bronze Age Greece. And it's an amazing archaeological site. And that's where Schliemann went and fabricated all those artifacts. And um, (laughs) that is that mask of Agamemnon, which might that might even be. You know what? Yeah. Tell me. I'm not that familiar with that. I'd like to hear more about that. (laughs) Heinrich Schliemann. Yeah. We could talk a little bit about that in the next one. So he he's the guy who was obsessed with with Troy and um Really, the first archaeologist, founder of archaeology, and oh, that's right, uh, you just told me this story. I don't remember yeah, if you told me on air though. It's a fun one. It is a fun one. He's a great guy. A little bit of a charlatan. <laughs> made made a bunch of money in Russia in the fur trade. Like uh, he was like a fur merchant in Saint Petersburg. You know, he's a German guy, and then he's obsessed with the Iliad. So he becomes independently wealthy. He goes down to Greece and and Turkey and starts looking for these places and, and he finds them, you know, he actually finds them. So he committed some, um, I guess, faux pas along the way <laughs> and, uh, you know, probably destroyed a lot of stuff on accident and um, may have um, fabricated a lot of artifacts. So he, <laughs> like th- the jewels of Helen, like he had his wife, like wearing these like gold stuff that they found, but it turned out that they had put it together. They didn't actually find it that way. They put it together and like, <sighs> He, he's not looked on as a way you sh- as a yeah. role model on how to perform archaeology, but that sounds like bad was... methodology, like taking a thing <laughs> and then rearranging it so your wife can wear it instead of trying to figure <laughs> out like what it was and what. Like... Yeah, but he was a huge celebrity, man. Like he was huge. Like yeah, that picture of his wife was on every news. So movie. yeah, that's so interesting. Like yeah, this. It, mm-hmm. Heinrich it doesn't Schliemann. seem like you're really appreciating it, right? Like, it seems like you're just taking it and using it. I don't want to say appropriating it. That doesn't seem quite right. But, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, 
you know, you're not really looking for the truth when you're doing that kind of goofy stuff. It's more about other stuff. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, this is before the methodology was really codified, you know. So, you know, he's the, he's the founder of it. It's not an exact science. Yeah. No, there's just so much going on in this story. I mean, like, yeah. So I'll be, lo- I'll be looking forward to hearing more of the theories about what might have happened to this, what, what Plato called the catastrophe, right? Like, there seems to be this memory you know, we have these things like Atlantis, you know, these, um, these kind of folk memories of these cataclysms and I wonder how much, how much of that stuff, you know, might have a, sh- a little bit of a shred of truth to it, like the Iliad, you know, and other heroic epics, the Odyssey and the Aeneid, you know, like I had never given that theory any credence, but you know, there's all this movement happening in the Mediterranean at this time. There's people that are ending up way far away and they're on boats. They, you know, maybe there's more to it, you know? So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It could also all be aliens. Like I said, Oh, sure. I mean, I think it's a kind of an Occam's razor thing, right? Like it's. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying it's certainly. Oh well, yeah. Like, but it could be, you know, things like system collapse or, you know, plague or something. No, fuck yeah, dude. This has been super interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah. Yeah. We can go over some of these. You know, there's nine different groups, the nine different bows, and there's theories on each of them. And, and they're very interesting. And just a little spoiler, two of them may be tribes of Israel, <laughs> okay. including nice. my namesake, the tribe of Asher may have been one of these sea people. Fascinating. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, so it's fun. But um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And thanks for trying to, you know, indulging me as I was just, you know, all over the Bronze Age Mediterranean. Uh, no, dude, I think that it made perfect sense. I, it's a super interesting story. And like I said, it induces a lot of existential dread. So thanks for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it could also be comforting that, you know, these calamities happen and we recover from them. So, yeah. Or, th- yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, too. <laughs> Well, word. Thank you so much for listening to Ad Hoc History. You can reach us at adhochistorypod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, complaints, angry rants you'd like to send to Asher, um, you can do that. Yes. <laughs> Just kidding. Please don't do that. <laughs> I would love to hear your angry rants. Um, there's a lot of passion on this subject about who these various sea people were because people are claiming them. You know, oh, these are these are our ancestors. And they were, you know, so um, I would love to hear who you guys think, you know, the sea people were, you know, what caused this collapse, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely seems like there's more to it than just a group of warriors wanting to fuck everything up. And hopefully we can get into some of that. Hell yeah. Well, looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. And um, we'll see you in the next one. As your body grows big, your mind must flower. It's great to learn because knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Yeah.